Welcome back to Taxpayer Talk. I'm Max, researcher at the TU, and I'm here today with Brooke Van Velden for another episode of our MPs in Depth series. Now, Brooke is the deputy leader of the ACTS party who was elected last year, having worked in David Seymour's office for three years. Prior to the election, she was already well known around Parliament for her integral work on the passing of the End of Life Choice Bill, and she is now the party's whip and spokesperson for health, foreign affairs, and trade. Brooke, it's a pleasure to have you on Taxpayer Talk. Well, thanks for having me, Max. Now, you were a significant part in the success of the end-of-life bill in the 2020 referendum. However, for most Kiwis, it's now disappeared from view. What's happening next? Well, it's been a really long process, and I think this act in particular shows how hard it is to actually get progress through the government. You know, not only have we not actually seen it come into force properly in the community yet, but it took about five years to even get to this stage. So if we go right back, uh, David Seymour had the end-of-life choice bill put into the ballot, I think it was in 2015. It took two years uh, for it to then be drawn from the ballot because, of course, these things happen by chance. Uh, And then once it was drawn, it had the first reading Uh, went through 16 months of select committee, which I understand is the longest select committee in history, uh, with 39,000 submissions. And then that second reading, a five-month committee of the whole house stage, third reading, and then once you'd finally think you've gone through the parliamentary process, uh, we then went through referendum. So it's been a very long time coming. But for now, um, the whole process is kind of out of my hands. Um, I've asked Minister Little uh, to keep me updated, which he has done. But ultimately, this is just about the implementation stage, which happens through the Ministry of Health. And I understand that they've been talking to, you know, GPs, the colleges, um, a whole range of different expert bodies uh, to try and get this ready to go. So it will actually work in practice on the 6th of November. Um, And just rolling back a little bit there, so how does the ballot submission process actually work? Because it's such an integral part of how our laws get made, but I suspect very few people actually know the ins and outs. Yeah, well, you'd be right there. It's it's really interesting because you assume that laws uh, are done in such a formal process, but it really is by chance a lot of the way that our laws are made. Um, So if you are someone you're considered a backbencher, you're not a minister in cabinet, or you're someone from the opposition, the only way that you can get your idea passed as a law is to put it through uh, the member's ballot phase. So, for example, if I take my own one, which is about uh, removing um, the practice that you have to have your personal home address online if you are uh, the owner of a company, if you're a company director, uh, because I believe it's a threat to safety and security for a lot of people and their families, especially when some people work in kind of areas that, you know, people might not like in society. So I've written my one uh, with the help of my staff, and that has now been put into the ballot. So when something happens, uh, like a first reading passes in Parliament, there has to be another one that's pulled Uh, from the ballot. So you literally go down to the clerk's office, they shake this little tin that was from a Decca store, and uh, usually a school kid pulls it out, and voila, now we have another law. That's very interesting. You worked in David Seymour's office uh, before becoming an MP, so what's the jump from staff to MP been like for you? 
It has been interesting, but to be fair, I think the only thing that's missing is when I see other new MPs, there's still kind of the spark in people's eyes when they're walking down the corridors for the first few months because everything's so exciting and new, and I don't really have that. So I feel like I'm missing out on that. Um, it is, I guess, a little bit different in that when you're writing advice for people um, and giving it to an MP, um, you're not in the position of then having to articulate it. Uh, so the only difference from my perspective really is, you know, I've got the advice coming in. Now I'm the one that's responsible for getting that message out to the public, um, but also representing the people rather than just having the ideas. So for me, the biggest change has been going around uh, the country. Um, and I've just come back from the Freedom of Speech tour in Queenstown yesterday. Um, and just listening to people's perspectives and saying, this is the role of a member of parliament. It's not there just to stand up in parliament and say my own ideas and have my own ego. It's to actually progress the ideas that people want to be seen in New Zealand. All right. Well, on that point, actors currently touring during parliament's recess, as you just said, on the issue of free speech. Uh, what's prompted this and what are you looking to achieve? Yeah, well, what we're looking to achieve is a genuine conversation and debate about what is freedom of speech and what is hate speech uh, because the government looks like they're going to progress hate speech laws in New Zealand um, and I believe it's possible that they could back down if we get a large enough voice in New Zealand saying that this is moving in the wrong direction and it's a breach of the rule of law um, because ultimately you can't have a law that's written down that's based on subjective opinion. Um, so the difference here is, you know, we currently have laws that say you can't yell fire in a crowded environment because people might be trampled to death by something that you've said. Uh, and you can't go out there and say, hey, Max, I think Max is a terrible person and you should kill Max. I mean, that's absolutely insane. You shouldn't be able to say that um, and somebody base their actions off that. But to say that you should be criminalized for an opinion that somebody deems to be insulting just crosses a boundary. Because what is insulting, exactly. it's different to different people. Um, and you even look at, uh, I know there's Annie O'Brien down here in Wellington. I yes. think she's a good friend of the taxpayers' union potentially. Uh, but she has a really good point when it comes to uh, freedom of speech and even her lesbian versus TERFs kind of argument, which is what does it mean uh, to be a woman? And you know, I think there are good arguments on both sides um, that people can identify as a woman. And ultimately, I look at that from my own perspective, and I don't really care how anybody identifies. But there is a lot of anger on both sides of some people saying you have to be biologically a woman and others saying you should be able to self-select. Uh, both people have a good argument, but there is an anger there and both of them find the arguments on the other side deeply insulting. Mm. Would it be right for the government to step in and say that one of those positions is wrong and potentially one of them is criminal? And I, I think that it breaches um, a rule of law. More widely... Uh, is what we are seeing here part of an act that's fostering this image of the 
party of maximizing individual liberties. So we got strong positions on gun rights, free speech, the Uyghur genocide recently, and away from maybe its tradition as a party of neoliberal economics, deregulation and tax cuts and areas in which it might be easier for national to overshadow act. Would you call that an accurate description? Or? No, I think it's always been there. Okay. So if I go back to, I guess, fundamentally, one of the reasons why I joined ACT in the first place, it was part of a freedom of speech issue. You know, at the time uh, I was at university, and don't hold this against me, but I was a massive Greens supporter. Uh, and that was because I actually do care about the environment and I care about poverty. Uh, but the, the more I looked into the issues when I was studying economics, I realized that none of the talk actually matched up to any of the actions or the policies. In fact, most of the policies had worse outcomes uh, if they were enacted. Um, but when I was discussing these things with other people in my class, other friends uh, that I had around campus, there was this, I guess, the seeping kind of underbelly idea that you can't actually express that opinion um, because it's wrong. And if you do care about the environment, there's only one way that you can care about the environment. Um, and I wanted to have a deeper discussion and actually talk about ideas in great detail. Um, and it wasn't until I actually stumbled into an ACT Party meeting by mistake that I had actually come across people who also wanted to have those deep discussions. Um, and I think this idea about individuals being able to have ideas, express their thoughts, and bring people with them in a collective rather than being part of a group that has an idea is really important. No, uh, and, and speaking of that, the uh, ACT Party itself is now made up of some uh, very strong personalities, several of which have been on this podcast, and you're now the party web. So what's the experience been like uh, keeping them operating as a cohesive <laughs> unit so far? It's actually been incredible. You know, um, I don't think I could find a better group of people to join this experience in my first term of parliament with. Um, when I start each day in parliament, I'm just waking up so grateful that every one of our team genuinely wants to be there, um, but is also wanting to do a good job and is not there just for their self-interest. You know, everyone is an individual with their own individual portfolios and cares and concerns, but there's a collective cohesiveness that we actually care about good public policy and we're there to progress the ideas that we think will lead to a better and fairer society rather than thinking of how do we trample over each other and get to the top or whatever and how do I get more speeches in the house. I mean, those things don't come up. We're actively wanting to help grow as a team in more of kind of a corporate culture than in a parliamentary culture. I see. ACT's voter base soared in 2020. Do you think that ACT had to compromise in any way on its principles going into the election to build that base? No, I don't think so at all. I think really what it was was that we were so clear on our principles uh, that that was what people were searching out for. Um, and I saw that before the election, when um, the COVID lockdowns first happened, uh, when David Seymour came out and said, look, I'm going to support the government in their intention, um, but I'm not going to compromise what I think should happen. Uh, and I am going to stand up 
for people's individual freedoms, um, putting forward better public policy, uh, looking at the how this will impact on the economy, uh, all these different ACT Party base core ideas. Um, and people really appreciated knowing exactly where we sat rather than kind of, I guess, firing away every week on a different issue. It's actually very comforting to know that there are people in Parliament who do have deep values and, and concerns. Of course. Um, now, you're a housing spokesperson for ACT as well, and it's been a very busy week for you. Um, so what's all this coming up now about rent control? Oh, oh don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it is quite scary. Um, so I've been looking at the issue of you know interest deductibility, for example, and... I set up a website, act.org.nz slash housing stories, and I've asked people, uh, genuine members of society, to say, what impact will this have on you? And I've been getting so many stories coming through, and they're really heartbreaking, some of them. I mean, I've got one particular example, and it's a, um, a woman who has a rental property, and she says that she rents it out to somebody who's got a criminal background uh, and bad debt, and their tenant has actually come to them and said, please put my rent up because I don't think that anyone else will take me. Um, and that's the issue that a lot of people will have. Uh, all of these ideas uh, that Grant Robertson and Megan Woods come out with that are supposed to help people who are on the, I guess, on the poverty line, getting them out of social housing, getting them into their own homes, actually does the opposite. Um, and there are people who say that they can't actually afford to keep going with their rental accommodation, but the government's not actually acknowledging that people are interdependent. There are renters who are potential first-home buyers, and then once they get that first home, uh, people move on to then think about their retirement and how they can make sure that they're not dependent on the government for their own retirement income. I think that's an admirable thing to do. And these are not evil, bad people that should be, you know, punished or are thinking of how we can rot the system and, you know, make the most of having tenants. Uh, and and the government is really, I guess, looking at the housing crisis, and it doesn't have any of its own real way of building any new homes. So they've decided the best way we can shift the blame is to pick people and, um, I guess, pit them against each other. And it's the same when you think of, you know, rent controls, like you say. Um, it's the government essentially saying that we don't know what to do, but what we'll do is we'll just punish one group in the hopes that another group will be satisfied. Ultimately, they just need to get back to good infrastructure planning, um, like the ACT Party's 30-year plan, and reforming the RMA so we can actually get people building more homes. So I guess this comes back to this, this point that why is this government, it has immense power, it's got a public mandate, it holds a majority in our uh, unicameral system. Why is it relying on crutches like rent controls, the bright line test, a stamp duty, uh, and all the other reasons that could be discussed instead of actually addressing supply side issues? What do you think the reason for that is? Well, I'd try and be generous, but <laughs> I think a lot of it is there's not a lot of depth 
within the Labour Party caucus. I mean, if you look at who's actually in control, there's only about three or four members of cabinet who are actually actively doing anything. Um, but then it's also about ideology. ideology. I mean, if you look at um, the types of jobs that most of the Labour um, cabinet had before they were, were um, politicians, I mean, half of them were part of unions. Um, so this is all an ideological base. Uh, and, and Grant Robertson even had his own bill before he was in government uh, that was about rent controls. So this is not something that's completely new. Um, but I think the real concern that we should have is that even when they're faced with evidence from Treasury and from their own advisors that stamp duties, rent controls, uh, interest deductibility is going to increase rents and make it harder for people who are Māori and Pacifica, which is essentially what Jacinda Ardern said that she wanted to do when she was in government was reduce poverty, you know, they don't actively take on that evidence and advice and uh, all they're looking for is just good sound bites that will make them sound kind. I think that is a serious concern that they're more interested in how do they appear to the media than actually passing good public policy. No, of course. it's um, And it's a growing concern, I think, particularly in the fact that they're, they're being presented with sound arguments against by their own ministries and they're mm. continuing to push on ahead regardless. Um, but just rounding back to earlier in there with the um, the comment on previous uh, Labour MPs, a lot of them do come from a union background or a hard left background. Um, now, your background is as a parliamentary staffer, and before that you uh, briefly worked in the private sector for a lobbying group. You're now Deputy Leader of ACTS. Do you think that in some way it undermines ACTS values that you've come from uh, as the party of the productive private sector, which you've only briefly worked in before moving across and into a, a taxpayer-funded role? No, not at all. I think um, one of the most important things you can do to recognise good value in Parliament is the values that people bring with them. And so I think my comment mainly about... Um, I guess people working for for the unions is what does that mean about what they're actually trying to progress? Mm -hmm. You know, um, for me, I think my background in economics is quite helpful um, because I'm able to look at uh, different situations and see, you know, even basic supply and demand, which labour <laughs> seem to forget exists. Um, but part of my role when I was um, I guess working in government relations was working for small businesses uh, and trying to stop regulation which would impose more costs onto businesses. Uh, so I was working in that environment and I was also working for a large law firm um, and they, I guess, had a lot of interaction with very vulnerable members of society and I'm very glad that I had that opportunity to see all of those different issues that were coming before the courts, um, not from being a lawyer, but just being around the people. Um, and I think that gave me a great insight into what is it that we're actually wanting to achieve in society? Do we actually want to stand up for the values of keeping people safe, um, the rule of law, uh, and making sure that we're putting forward good public policy? It's looking deeper into issues than just, I want to care for people. 
So that, I think that's yeah. what I bring to the table. Is no. I've, I've got a, a bit of an analyst background. No, and I think it, it comes back to a point you raised earlier when it's it's all very admirable to have these these high and mighty standpoints, but unless you've actually got actionable ideas, um, mm. then they're, they're functionally worthless. Yeah. Act has uh, recently in the last couple of days been uh, using, throwing around the phrase, building like the boomers. Um, so what does that look like? So for us, we acknowledge, yes, there is a housing crisis. I mean, a couple of years ago, people weren't acknowledging that all at all, apart from the Act Party. Um, we're also saying we need to be looking deeper into how do we incentivize the councils uh, to help people build more homes. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, even when I was down in Queenstown yesterday, I heard from somebody who's doing his own private development, and he says it took two years to get resource consent and it took one year to actually build the thing. So why is it that it took three years uh, to get this project off the ground? Um, and we look at the fact that, you know, one of the constraints on councils wanting to do developments is that they don't have enough money uh, because they're the ones who have to front up for the infrastructure costs like building the new roads, building um, the water pipes, uh, making sure that you have uh, footpaths for prams to go on. Um, All of those costs need to come from somewhere. And the way we look at incentivizing the council is saying half of the GST from every new build should be put back into the council that issued the consent. Um, And another way of looking at it as well is that we'd want to put in place 30-year regional partnerships with central government so that there are long-term infrastructure plans happening uh, between regions. So you're not just getting really good... um, infrastructure in one particular city and then there are no big highways going into the next one. Uh, All of these things are interconnected. Um, So if two councils could come together or three councils in a triangle could come together and say, this is what we see as our plan for interconnectedness over the next 30 years and central government could partner to provide the funding for that, Mm -hmm. that is a much better way then getting into the state that we are now where you have, for example, the Labour government saying this is an election promise, we're going to put in a new tram. Um, you know, We need to get the, the politicisation out of our infrastructure because that's holding us back. Taking a bit of a, a bit of a sharp turn into international affairs, um, acknowledging China's treatment of the Uyghurs as genocide, will Labour do it? And if not, why do you think not? Well, it's a really good question, and it's something that I'll be putting to the Labour Party. Um, I think they are in a tricky situation. Um, And don't get me wrong, it's not an easy situation, you know, to come out and say that what you think is happening in another country is a genocide. But I think I would be calling on all of my parliamentary colleagues to actually be brave enough and courageous enough to, to be able to debate the issue. And that's all I'm asking them to do. Uh, So for the listeners, um, I've put in place a motion uh, asking for Parliament to be able to debate whether whether the crimes against humanity occurring in the Xinjiang region are acts of genocide. Um, For me to be able to do that, I need the ability for Labour to agree for the debate to happen. So it's not asking them to agree uh, that there is a genocide. 
It just needs to be that they will allow the freedom of speech, even within our own parliament, to debate the issue. Um, I would be very hopeful that they would, um, but I also, having seen what they're doing about hate speech um, and I guess the general wokeness that's happening, do have my concerns that they might shoot that down. Um, and if people more generally, if listeners wanted to educate themselves on the issue, what direction would you point them in? Where would you tell them to go? Uh, the best um, parts that I can see are probably the BBC Independent Investigation. You mm -hmm. can find that online um, because ultimately the, the biggest problem that has been faced uh, is that the UN Independent Investigators aren't able to access the region uh, to see what is actually happening, whereas the BBC journalists have managed to corroborate some findings from people who have escaped uh, from detention camps um, and they've put in place their own um, analysis. Very good. And uh, at the end of these podcasts, we tend to do a brief, or I tend to uh, do a brief section called overrated and underrated. Um, so I'll throw out a bunch of concepts and you can just tell me whether you think they're overrated or underrated or whether they're well-rated at the moment. So amalgamating DHBs, overrated or underrated? Oh, that one's a hard one because I actually <laughs> agree with the amalgamation. Uh, so I would say it's probably underrated by some of my parliamentary colleagues. I see. Uh, sunset clauses, overrated or underrated? Oh, they're probably overrated. Overrated. Yeah, because oh. I got into, into a tricky situation with a sunset clause myself. Tobacco taxes? Oh, they're overrated. They're overrated. Oh, God. I mean, those are the, the, the really crux of the matter with the Labour Party, right? Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's the taxation... Um, because you think you're going to be helping people, but you end up harming the people that you were trying to help. I mean, you th the added cost that goes on to somebody who's in a lower socioeconomic group who genuinely is having a very stressful life, just let them have a cigarette. I see. Uh, cannabis legalization, overrated or underrated? God, these are hard questions, aren't they? <laughs> um, I think it's probably overrated. I mean... There isn't a lot that's going on in society now that says, you know, people are actually getting imprisoned for smoking a bit of weed. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Max. The Taxpayer Talk podcast is made possible by the tens of thousands of New Zealanders who join or support the Taxpayers Union at taxpayers.org.nz. Constructive feedback is welcome via podcast at taxpayers.org.nz. And don't forget to hit subscribe or even give us a five-star review on your podcast app.